Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 45, and it's time to turn our attention to Namaqualand. This is an area which is not spoken of very often, the wild northern frontier where bandits rode oxen and escaped slaves, white soldiers, and black clans joined forces or fought each other. The brigands and badlands here are exotic to say the least, as you're going to hear. Folks fixate on the tales from the eastern Cape frontier for good reason, that's true. And yet, much of the rich history of southern Africa encompasses the Orange River and its tributaries, as well as the Namaqualand, the Karoo, the mystical and mythical geography lending beauty to what was an extraordinarily dangerous period in the last quarter of the 18th century. As you know by now, the area known as the Namaqualand was generally referred to as the home of the little Namaqua, or clan Namaqua. Great Namaqualand was the home of the great Namaqua, and was across the Orange River, today known as Namaland. Relationships between the San and Khoikhoi groups were not straightforward long before the settlers rolled across the landscape. The little Namaqua had been accustomed to graze their livestock on the Ulifants River Valley Great Flats and the Sunfelt of the west coast to the north of the Piketbach. By the 18th century, the Grigriqua were under the patronage of the Namaqua, but they were disintegrated through the century. Those who survived the raids and robberies of colonists and the smallpox epidemic of the early 18th century, then the drought and disease which ravaged the area, were forced to work as servants of the Trekpurs, or trekked away to the north themselves. Many of these people ended up in Namibia, where the Germans ran into them at the end of the 19th century. But the survivors back in South Africa, near the Orange River, formed the nucleus of the Griqua and played an important role around the river. Some ended up as servants or Khan of the herdsman or Kaisan to the Namakwa. The Sunfelt San acted as clients of the little Namakwa at times. That was after the 1770s. But the Bushmanland San, as they were known, were usually no one's client or servant. There were many stories of these people travelling secretly for days and stealing cattle and killing koi. There were also many stories of revenge on both sides. In the northwest, the great Namakwa, particularly the Gatkam under their captain Kendalar, were constantly waging war with the Zamdama, the Namakwas living closer to the ocean, as well as the Koi living along the Fish River. In the east, the little Namakwa's most powerful neighbours were the Iniqua, although there was not continuous contact between the two groups. Their language, though, was almost the same, but they did not interact. The little Namakwa avoided travelling east up the Fish River, the thing to visualize is that Bushman land near the Zutfeld acted as a buffer, whereas the Makwa land was more like a gateway to the Orange River. As the saying goes, the Namakwa land is a semi-desert surrounded by a desert. This semi-desert was almost like a vast oasis in the midst of aridity, and of course later it would be sought after by the Trekpurs. There are rugged granite mountains here, the Kamisbach, where perennial springs of fresh water can be found, and its relatively high elevation made it cooler than its surroundings. The grazing was surprisingly good, too. That meant pastoralists of various types made it a focal point for well over a thousand years before the trek was. The transhuman lifestyle exploited the variations of Namakwalan's three geographies. The first was a sunfelt or desert coastal belt, then the mountain belt, and finally Bushmanland, or the inland plateau, which was cooler and the best watered part of the region. Of the three, the Namakwa people preferred the mountains, which were cool and received rainfall from the slopes facing the ocean. 
Rain fell mainly in the winter, unlike the rest of southern Africa, during which time it was possible to graze in the lowlands. The sun felt to the west. The mountains experienced sleet and snow in winter, and still do, so the Namakwa would trundle down the hills for winter, then back up for summer. When the rains fell in Bushmanland, these were good areas to graze as well. As we've heard from the earliest days of Fandibek, the colonists were aware of the existence of the Namakwa. By the end of 1740, the Dutch were in complete control of the lands to the south of Namakwaland, and large groups of dispossessed Namakwa trekked north. The first Europeans to settle in Namakwaland arrived in the 1750s, but before them, ivory and other hunters had passed through regularly. By February and March of 1750, Jan Overholster, Jan Meyer, and Jan Penter had registered loan farms here, which they called Lilifontein and Groene Rivier. Then Rudolf Britz arrived in 1750, hearing the stories of this highland of good grazing, and registered his loan farm Schoenmakersfont at a place he called De Leuven Valley, the Valley of the Lions. By 1760, a spate of loan farm registrations took place in the Macquarie, including Jan van Arden, who registered De Yacht and De Lilifontein. Another ten years and several more trek boers were in the region and colonists began to encroach on the Namakwa and pressed on northwards to exploit the resources of the Orange River. The main Khoikhoi inhabitants of the Middle Orange River were the Iniqua, who belonged to the same language group as the Korana. We're going to hear quite a bit about the Korana over this series. They were an unusual people even by the standards of uniqueness of Southern Africans. One of the dialects of the Iniqua was spoken by the people of the Namankoa, who lived along the rivers. Their riverine lifestyle made them distinct from the other people of the region, although they were pastoralists who ate fish and river shellfish amongst other foods. Most other koi away from the river were purely pastoralists. The Namankoa were Karana and lived in three main large settlements or kraals. Two of these were on Pardon Island on the Orange River above the Okhrabis Falls and the third on an island an hour's journey further upstream. Later, a Swedish deserter from the VOC by the name of Vika estimated their settlements averaged around 40 huts, and he was most impressed by their livestock. They were fat and sleek. The islands were covered with luxuriant grasses and wild cucumbers. But all these people grew as a crop, was marijuana, or dacha as we know it. The soil was fertile, and these riches were all protected by a series of streams, islands, and dense bush. It was their little Eden. Apart from the great fishing, the Namankoa also hunted the plentiful game along the banks. One of the great myths of modern South Africa is that black people could never swim. Of course, that's rubbish, and a thousand years ago these Khoikhoi people were swimming in the orange. The Namankoa were quite at home in that big river, swimming across the broad stretches and at times floating their possessions around using rafts or logs as floats. Vicar described an idyllic lifestyle. As soon as the children began to walk, they began to swim and their usual occupation growing up was to be found in the water all day. Members of the clans of these people were also found wandering around along the river, socialising with other Khoikhoi groups when they weren't in conflict, which was fairly regularly. The smaller kraals would move upstream or downstream if the river rose or fell during flooding or climate-changing events, including droughts. The fluidity of these groups showed up with another Khoikhoi living with the sand and the great Namakwa, living with a Kaukoa, another group in the area. But it wasn't all fun in the sun. Before 1780, for example, the Namankoa made war with their Nikwa neighbours, the Kaukoa, otherwise known as the Kaukais, Cutting Kral or Snares Folk. 
They lived close to Skanskop and other islands west of the Kaimos. Nearby, the Okokoa people or narrow cheeks of Cannon Island were found, and further east lived the Grizikoa or Twin Kral people. They were a mixture of the Korana and Batlaping, who we had met already. The fighting usually involved a raid of cattle and now and again loss of life. This was the order of things and didn't unduly disturb the balance of power along the river. If the Namankoa took a lot of cattle one year, the Grizikoa retook them the next. There's a great deal more information about these people in a wonderful book by Nigel Penn called The Forgotten Frontier. If you want to be amazed by the detailed stories that we were never taught in history and still are not taught, to be honest. The Namankoa were quite friendly with local sand and there was even a pecking order. The Anoi Ace or Bright Kral people were part sand and lived at the Okhrabi's Falls and numbered around a hundred, a small clan. They made a living by catching fish, hunting and digging pits to trap hippopotamus, elephant and rhino. The sand living between the Okhrabi's and the modern area of Goodhouse were on friendly terms with the Eniqua, but enemies of the Namakwa. While ostensibly sand, there was some confusion even amongst the Namakwa about exactly who these sand were. Another small clan nearby were also a bit confusing and called the Nanangai, or mountain climbers, and both sets of people in that area kept cattle, which is not what sand did as a rule. There were other groups of sand and koi intermingling, tiny kraals really, along the Harpias River heading towards Kakamas. One was called the Tamakakoa-san, who travelled along the Sak Rafir further south. And it was called the Sak because the water suddenly disappeared into the sand before re-emerging as the Harpias River near present-day Kenhart in a kind of hydrological magic trick. So the closest people to the Namankoa were the Kaokoa or Katinkral people of Skanskop Island, who I mentioned a moment ago. They were forced into a life of fishing by the continued raiding just before the settlers arrived and were constantly fighting with their neighbours, unlike the fragile balance that existed amongst others I've described. Because they had no cattle, the Kaokoa were relegated to eating only fish and were sneered at by their pastoralist island neighbours. As we probe this incredible region with its island peoples living in a semi-desert, it's clear towards the west and north they were intermarried with the Tswana and had an oral history describing this ancestry. Some could even understand Xhosa, such had the languages of southern Africa intermingled for hundreds of years. Further east, heading deeper into the interior, lived the Korana groups who could be found in the vicinity of Case. They were the Koringes, or Little Korana, otherwise known as the Hutstanders, or Proud People. As far as travellers were concerned, such as our Swedish escapee from the VOC, Vika, the Iniqua and the Karana were essentially the same people. Later, it was found they were closely related, as they are from the same language group. They were a lot less generous to passing travellers and used their Mantubu-san as clients. So we follow the Orange River further east, and the next people were those of Scorpion Kral, the Husing Ace, a branch of the Great Karana, then the people of the Kokukes Kral, who were extremely afraid of the first colonists they met. Here, the relationship between the Karana and the Tswana began to be found with large numbers of Tswana carosses and skins, further evidence of contact between the two peoples. It's around Priska where I travelled recently, and it's here where various groups of Karana began to be found in large numbers back in 1780. And it's here, bizarrely, where the greatest effect of an expanding depredation of the raiding European settlers were felt, although if you look at a map, 
It was further away from Cape Town physically than most of those areas I've just described. They were the last quarry to be met by colonial travellers, but it transpired that their ancestors had fled from the Cape more than a hundred years before to escape the early Dutch settlers. We now know that the little Corona were not originally from the Cape, whereas the oral traditions of the main Corona group were a product of the original Khoi Khoi of the Orange who actually mixed with the migrating Khoi from the Cape. The Corona was a useful term particularly late in the 19th century where travellers deployed the phrase as a catch-all to describe a hodgepodge of diverse and fragmented people. Groups of predominantly Khoi origin who had been dislocated by the expanding colonial frontier began to migrate northwards to the Orange River and they incorporated the shattered remnants of other fugitive groups as they went. This chaotic disorder of the border area around the confluence of the Vaal and Orange meant the Karana began to dominate other Iniqua groups who lived westwards towards the Atlantic. They even forced the Tswana, living at the confluence of the Vaal and Orange rivers, to withdraw to the north. Then the settlers themselves started arriving in 1786 through to 1800, and Karana expansion was deflected further north, by these trekboers. In the face of the combined assault, as Nigel Penn puts it, a Nikwa identity disappeared and the Khoikhoi people of the river merged with the Karana. A distinct time of ancient South African history was eclipsed in a matter of two decades as the 19th century approached. And yet, the Karana were no pushover themselves, as the colonial forces would discover. The Karana rode horses and oxen, they could fire muskets, and many were experienced in fighting the settlers. They were strong enough to fight two anti-colonial wars in 1868 and 1879. But a hundred years earlier, in 1779, Trekboers, who had arrived in Namakwaland, were married to local Khoi women. Gordon, the great adventurer, wrote, From Grune River there are 19 stock farms in Namakwaland. Of these, there are five married farmers. The rest mostly take a Hottentot woman or two, which they marry according to their custom. Meaning the Khoi custom, of course. If you travel about these areas today, post-apartheid, and mention this, you may find yourself experiencing an empty seat at the bar. Certain people do not like to be reminded of their ancestors' exploits. It's a bit silly, really. Surely these early courageous men who were living amongst the sand and Khoi were naturally part of the social arrangements. And these stories prove it. In the northwestern frontier zone of the Cape, miscagenation was the rule rather than the exception. The great distance and comparative isolation of this semi-desert oasis, this Namakwaland, and the Orange River encouraged behaviour that would later be discouraged by self-righteous Dumnies and white Puritans. The majority of colonials in Namakwaland in 1780 were married outside their Christian church in traditional Khoikhoi ways, to traditional Khoikhoi women. And this, dear listener, had a profound influence on the social, political and economic structures of both communities. Two distinct pastoral communities were being bound together by ties of kinship. The big problem now is that because this period has, well, been whitewashed out of oral tradition by the Trekpurs, we don't know the extent to which Trekpurs regarded their Khoi in-laws as family or vice versa. What shared experience bound them to ties of blood, we just don't know, as bizarre as that sounds. Perhaps it's time for the purveyors of fine DNA testing to weave their scientific magic in the area. 
Certainly, the offspring of such unions cannot be ignored, though their precise status at the time is hard to define. That's because this status was also being constantly redefined as South Africa developed, and things were to become steadily worse for the men and women whose dad was a Boer and whose mum was a Khoi, and thus the term bastard entered our lexicon, for this was what these little kids were called. Children bore the surnames of their fathers, which is testimony to the fact that their parentage was not only acknowledged at the time, it was stamped, it is an immortal fact. Then, instead of remaining in strictly Khoi culture, the people who became known as the Bastards gravitated to white society, so to speak. This is sensitive stuff, folks, but history isn't for ninnies, they say. You've got to stare straight at the truth, or it'll sneak up on you and give you what we call a snort club out of the blue. Initially, the Bastards were thought of as superior to the Khoi, the non-mixed people, if you like, but this perception declined through the 18th century. By the 1800s, the High Society of Cape Town no longer accepted these mixed marriages and it became more and more difficult for children to acquire loan farms, for example. So it was then that over time, Namakwaland was a kind of distant oasis of a different kind, where the social mores of the isolation meant the trek boers accepted these people as equals or something akin to that, where bastards were allowed to acquire loan farms while those rights had been dispensed with by the increasingly conservative race prudes of Cape Town. Thus, these Namakwaland farms were loaned out by the Gedoopte Bastards Volk, as the registration notes in 1793, and the men who received these in that year were a Mr. Cook, Mr. Diedrichs, Mr. Uwies, Mr. Brandt and Mr. Mayer. No guessing who their grandfathers or fathers were, they used the same surname. Mixed sons of white fathers who registered land through the next decade or so into the 1800s were all Trekboer offspring, Engelbrecht, Bukes, Klutti, Mostert, Bock, Brandt, Meyer, Morton, Rousseau, Van Rooyen and Besaidenot. But they were not all. There were also those rebels and deserters who'd fled the VOC rule half a century before who lent their names to their mixed progeny, Bench, Klauser, Dierhardt, Diedrichs, Eimann, Korte, Modell, Otto and Zal. Ah, the history of this part of Africa is bountiful in its ironic treasures. Next episode, we're back in the Macquarie, and then we'll return to the Third Frontier War in the Zutfeld. It's all happening. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the desire, or contact me via Twitter using my handle, at Des Latham. You can also email me through my website, desmondlatham.com. I'm still upgrading the other sites involved in this series. I'm afraid it's taking some time. Until next, Totsins. Thank you.